Proverbs. There's some wonderful snippets in there, aren't there? There's all sorts of wonderful phrases that jump out at us, but I just pray that's what happens tonight, that God will open up our eyes and our hearts in wonder at all that he wants to say to us. So tonight we're carrying on with our series through the book of Proverbs, and we're thinking particularly tonight about choices, particularly the choice of choosing wisdom, or foolishness, or in this passage it's going to refer to it as folly. So we're thinking about choices, something we all make. From the moment that dreaded alarm clock is going to go off at six something tomorrow morning, we make a choice. Do I hit the alarm and snooze it, or do I get out of bed and face Monday morning with a spring in my step, or do I see how many times I can snooze it and then jump up? Choices are, what colour socks do I put on? What do I have for breakfast? So some choices are trivial, aren't they? Of no consequence, really. It really doesn't matter what colour socks I've put on. Some choices have some degree of consequence. For example, if I choose to ignore the weather forecast and it says it's going to tip it down with rain, I'm going to get wet. But it's not really the end of the world, is it? But other choices that we make have got massive consequences. Perhaps choices over relationships, jobs, Finance, faith. So to make a good choice, what do we need? Well, we need knowledge, we need understanding, and then to actually apply those is to have wisdom. So we need to make a choice to choose wisely, to get wisdom. And that's what the book of Proverbs is trying to encourage us to do. So King Solomon, that wrote Proverbs, was recognizing that the people of Israel lacked wisdom. He was a really wise man, and he tried to impart that knowledge to the wisdom uh, to Israel through writing the book of Proverbs. He wanted to produce wisdom in his people, and he told them that fearing God, coming before God in reverent awe and wonder was the key to wisdom. So more than just knowledge, more than just understanding, we need to turn to God if we're truly going to be counted as wise people. But the problem for Israel was not only were the people lacking wisdom, but the kings were lacking it too. Solomon had repeatedly warned his son not to fall for the wrong woman, not to fall for foreigners, but that's what his son did. And his son made bad decisions, splitting the kingdom in two because he was listening to foolish people rather than his elders. So Solomon wrote down all these sayings, trying to encourage his son to grow in wisdom and make wise choices. So just before we turn to the passage, we just need to understand a term that Solomon used when he was writing. And if you've got children at primary school, you've probably been doing your homework on this this week. He used a term called personification, where you give an abstract idea, human characteristics. So he's trying to personify wisdom. So throughout this passage, he personifies wisdom as a wise woman, an intelligent woman. And a woman's used for two reasons. Firstly, in the Hebrew word, Wisdom takes on a feminine noun, and so he personifies wisdom because that's the gender of the word used in language there. But also he's trying to get his son to pay attention. So what might be more alluring to his son 
than trying to persuade him that wisdom is a wise and alluring woman likely to grab his attention. So if you're following in your Bibles, and it will be on the screen as well, we're in chapter 9 of Proverbs. And we're going to read the first nine verses and then jump to verse 13 and carry on from there. Invitations of wisdom and folly, it's called. It says, wisdom has built her house. She has honed out its seven pillars. She's prepared her meat and mixed her wine. She's also set her table. She has sent out her maids and she calls from the highest point of the city. Let all who are simple come in here. She says to those who lack judgment, come, eat my food and drink the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and you will walk and live in the way of insight and understanding. Whoever corrects a mocker invites insult, but whoever rebukes a wicked man incurs abuse. Do not rebuke a mocker or he will love you. That's jumped. But if you rebuke a wise man, he will love you. Instruct a wise man and he will be wiser still. Teach a righteous man and he will add to his learning. And then jumping to 13, it says, Folly is an unruly woman. She is simple and knows nothing. She sits at the door of the house on a seat at the highest point of the city, calling out to those who pass by, who go straight on their way. Let all who are simple come to my house. To those who have no scent, she says, stolen water is sweet. Food eaten in secret is delicious. But little do they know that the dead are there, that her guests are deep in the realm of the dead. So I've always found Proverbs quite a bewildering book to read. I always used to picture it as almost like a thousand-piece jigsaw puzzle where the pieces are scattered all over the place and you've lost the lid of the box. So you don't know what picture you're trying to piece together. And I think for those reading in the Old Testament times, Proverbs must have been a bit like that. Random bits all trying to point to something that you didn't know what they were pointing to. But like every passage in the Bible, we've got that picture on the lid of the box. We know what it's all pointing to. And it's all trying to point us to Jesus. All trying to make us more Christ-like. So when we realise that everything in this passage, everything in the book of Proverbs is trying to point us to Jesus, we start to get some idea of where God is trying to guide us through this scripture And like a jigsaw, the more pieces you put together, the easier it becomes then to see and understand the whole picture. The easier it is to see Jesus and his Father through Scripture. So Proverbs isn't just a book of helpful tips trying to change our behaviour. Proverbs is trying to make us more like Jesus. Trying to make us choose wisely to help us make that wise choice and dwell with Jesus and not the temptations of this world. So let's look at this passage carefully. 
Wisdom's introduced to us, first of all, like a magnificent queen, like someone great and generous. And you can start to parallel the imagery that's used to try and convey what wisdom's like to how our Father is with us, to how God loves us, how God calls us, and how he invites us. So the first thing that we can picture is the welcome that wisdom is inviting us to receive. It says, wisdom has built her house. She's honed out its seven pillars. So we can see she's gone to the trouble of building a magnificent house for her guests to dwell in. Not finding a house that was big enough already. She's gone to build one grand enough to accommodate everyone that she wants to welcome. And to strengthen the house and beautify it, she's taken the time to carve out seven pillars. And the significance of that seven is to convey the impressiveness, the sufficiency of the house as full in size, as grand enough and big enough to accommodate everyone that she wants to welcome. That number seven comes up so many different times in the Bible and there's all sorts of interpretations of what these seven pillars mean. It could be similar to the seven pillars that Solomon built around his temple, the seven churches that get referred to in the letters in Revelation, seven days of creation, seven gifts of the Holy Spirit. But whenever we see seven in the Bible, it's all talking about being spiritually complete. So what Solomon's trying to say is that wisdom's house lacks nothing. It's spiritually complete. Now, if you think about the house that we're all hopefully going to dwell in one day, if you've chosen to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you know where you're going. You know that one day you're going to end up in heaven with our Heavenly Father. And there we'll be dwelling in a house that's been built for us that's spiritually complete, that's magnificent, that lacks nothing. Because we're told that Jesus has gone ahead and prepared that for us to dwell in. It says, My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? So one day we're going to dwell in a magnificent house with our father The King James Bible puts it even more strongly. It says, In my Father's house are many mansions. Just think about that for a minute. There's a mansion waiting for you that Jesus himself has gone ahead and prepared for you. Doesn't that blow your mind? So we're welcomed by Jesus himself. Then we're told that wisdom's prepared a banquet for her guests. A feast, much like the feast again, that awaits us one day in heaven. The marriage feast that's talked about, about the bride of Christ coming to be with Jesus. The church coming to be with him. It says, wisdom's prepared her meat and mixed her wine. She's also set her table. So wisdom's got everything ready herself. Can you imagine the scene, the table all laid out, set beautifully, the cutlery gleaming, the candles lit, the music playing, the decorations in place. This is a banquet like no other. Everything's ready because she's taken the time to do all the necessary preparations in advance. And most importantly, she's made the sacrifices 
that are required for the banquet to go ahead. She's been busy preparing the meat so that the feast can take part. She's paid the price and she's made the sacrifice. And then it says the wine is ready and freely available. And the reason that she's mixed the wine is that back in the temple, the wine was diluted in ratio by as much as one to eight so that it didn't intoxicate people and mixed with spices for flavor. So all that is talked about just to show the care that has been lavished in the preparation. So again, parallel that to what Jesus has done for us. The feast that we are invited to, that the church is invited to, is already ready because the sacrifice has been made. Jesus is that sacrifice that's been made for us. His death on the cross was the price that needed to be paid and he's done that in full. No other sacrifice is required for us to enter into relationship with him and to enter into eternity with his father. We don't need to do anything but accept his invitation and come to the feast. So see how wisdom has done all that work herself, how she's prepared the meat, she's made the sacrifice, she's got the wine, she set the table, she built the house. It's all done with love, with attention to detail, just in the same way as Jesus himself loves us. He's lavished such care and attention on us. He's made us in his image. He's paid the price for us. And he stands there with open arms, just wanting us to come and accept all that he's done for us. So everything's ready. The guests are able to turn up at the feast. So now she starts to issue her invitation. And again, it says wisdom herself issues the invitation she calls from the highest part of the city. The highest part of the city is where the temple was found. And it's saying that wisdom's invitation is not a secret. It's public. It's there for everybody to accept. It's personal. The temple is where in those days God was sought and God was found. Whereas for us now, we can find God anywhere, anywhere we choose to make time to spend with him and dwell with him. So wisdom offers those personal invitations and then she follows them up by sending out her maidservants, by spreading the invitation as far and wide as she can. And again, we've got those parallels with what Jesus has done. He himself issued invitations for people to come and follow him. He took the time to extend personal invitations. And he still does that today through his Holy Spirit, coming to each and every person, offering that invitation to let him in to their lives. And then as wisdom follows it up with her servants, so Jesus had his disciples as well. And still today, he commissions us, doesn't he, to spread the word and invite those who don't yet know him. So we've got a job to do. Yet despite the richness of all that is offered, all that's offered, this feast is open to everyone. There's no criteria to those that are invited. 
Wisdom doesn't go out saying, you've got to have this much money to come to my feast. You've got to have this social status to come to my feast. It's open to everyone. Just like Jesus doesn't have a success criteria. He doesn't say, it's only if your social status is this good. It's only if you drive this car. It's only if your house is this big. Jesus opens his invitation to everyone, to ordinary people, to you, to me. That invitation reminds me of the the parables that Jesus told about how the honoured guests were invited first, but they all made excuses and they all turned down the invitation. And then it was opened up to everyone else. And Jesus said, go quickly into the streets, the alleys of the town, and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. And Jesus went on to say, I've come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So that invitation's for everyone, for all. We're all heirs in all that Jesus wants to give us. So you haven't got to be perfect to come. You haven't got to have everything sorted in your life to come and accept the invitation. All you have to do is say, I'm here. Yes, Jesus, I respond. So we're all invited by wisdom to come eat the food, the drink and the wine that has been mixed. And you don't have to look hard to see that that parallels the invitation that Jesus gave his disciples at the Last Supper when he broke the bread and said, eat of my body. And he took the cup of wine and said, drink of my blood. It's the invitation that's still extended to us today. Bread and wine are still a communion meal that we share together when we eat the bread and drink the wine and remember all that Jesus has invited us to share with him. And we're fed and we're nourished and we're refreshed by it. Part of what I love about the Methodist Church is that we don't have rules and regulations about who can come to the communion table. We say all are welcome. Anyone that loves the Lord Jesus or longs to love the Lord Jesus or know him better are welcome at the communion table. It's inclusive. Everyone's welcome. Everyone's welcomed by Jesus. But then there's just one requirement that comes if we want to accept that invitation. In verse 6, we're told, leave your simple ways and you will live. Walk in the way of insight. If we truly want to dwell with wisdom and get wisdom, and we truly want to follow Jesus with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul, with all of our passion, then we're to leave behind the things of this world, the foolishness, the sin, the things that would pull us back and stop us from giving our all to Jesus. And we're to walk in the ways of wisdom. If we're serious about really wanting to grow with him, we have to be willing to make changes. We have to be willing to follow wisdom's call on our lives, the direction that God's pulling us in and calling us to, because that's when it says we'll truly live. It's not easy, is it? It can be really difficult at times, but the reward is overwhelming. We'll have life in abundance, life in all its fullness, joy. But we just have to make that choice to leave the world behind us. And as we were thinking about this morning, to take up our cross, deny ourselves, 
and choose wisely to follow Jesus. So even then, Solomon realized that without God's wisdom, people were wandering around in death, a spiritual death. They've got to wake up, they've got to rise from the dead, and they've got to live, not in the pleasures of this world, but in knowing God. And in the same way, until we fully accept Jesus, we're wandering around asleep. We're wandering around in a spiritual darkness. And that's why there's that great verse in the Bible that later inspired a great hymn. Wake up, O sleeper, and rise from the dead. Without Jesus, we're dead. But in him, we are alive. So the invited guests have to choose the path of wisdom and keep to it. They've got to walk in the ways of insight, of understanding and of knowledge. They've got to forsake the foolish, leave that behind them. But we're told it's a lifelong process. It's not a one-time decision. We have to constantly choose to make that right choice. Constantly choose to dwell in the house of wisdom and constantly choose to follow Jesus. And that's why attending church is so important. That's why belonging to a small group, why praying with others, being accountable to someone is so important. It helps keep us on that right, straight path. It stops us from wandering off and being drawn away by the world. So if it's something you're struggling with and you're not in a small group, join one. If it's something you're struggling with, find someone to pray with. Get them to support you and encourage you. But find a way to keep on that right path so that you can grow in wisdom. So Lady Wisdom's got everything ready. She's got the welcome ready. She's got the banquet ready. The invitation's gone out. Little did Solomon know when he was writing this that the wisdom that was coming into the world was coming through the Messiah that was promised and prophesied about through Isaiah and others and would embody all that he was talking about when he was talking about Lady Wisdom. Isaiah had written, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom, of understanding, of counsel and of might. The spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. Jesus is that shoot. Jesus is the one that the spirit of wisdom rests upon. Jesus is that spirit anointed king that was so longed for back in those days. But we have the privilege of knowing Not only did Jesus teach wisdom, but he lived it out. He embodied it all. He was God's wisdom on earth. In 1 Corinthians, it says, To those God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And it goes on to say, Because of him, you're in Christ Jesus, who has become for us God's wisdom. Jesus is God's wisdom personified. And when we turn to Jesus, when we ask him to help us and guide us, he guides us in that wisdom because the spirit of wisdom rests upon him. Yet there's another contender for our souls. 
And we come to that second half of the passage. Because the devil too offers an invitation to dwell with him. And so we get this second part of the passage and the contrast of the two shows that are designed to be read together and then set upon side each other and compared. So here we've got another woman, this time called Folly. And at first it seems a tempting invitation too. There's another house to dwell in. There's another banquet to go to. There's another invitation issued. But scratch the surface and you see that what Folly is really offering is death. Folly is described as simple and knows nothing. She hasn't built a beautiful house. She's not prepared a sumptuous meal. All she's got to offer is bread and stolen water. And they're not meant to be understood literally, but as symbols of death, of no life, of no hope, just of hopelessness. And the place that she offers her invitation from is that of false gods, of idols, not of the one true living God. And no care has been offered with her invitation. She just sits and shouts it out. Wisdom's invitation was clear. There was no hidden agenda. But Folly's invitation has got a line of small print at the bottom. You know those adverts that you see on TV of credit cards that offer to clear all your debt for you in a matter of months? And they look really tempting. But you look really closely at that small print that flashes up quickly and it tells you that it's got an APR of about 4,000% and that you're going to be paying it back till you're at least 80 or maybe some more. Well, if you think that's a bad deal, then look at what Folly's offering. The small print of that invitation, verse 18, says, but little do they know that the dead are there. The meal that Folly's serving is death. On the surface, it looks like temporary pleasure. But what she fails to explain is that it brings eternal consequences. Folly fails to explain to her guests that choosing her house means being condemned to hell, being condemned to death. But wisdom's invitation's got no small print, no hidden agenda, no strings attached. To accept her invitation is to have a rich and rewarding and fulfilling life. To accept Jesus' invitation is to have life that's overflowing, life that's abundant, an eternal life with him one day. So whose invitation will you accept? Now accepting Jesus... Although we're promised all those wonderful things and God's promises are never broken, it doesn't mean that life's going to be easy. I can testify to that myself time and time again. But it does mean you don't face the challenges alone. When life is overwhelming, when life is difficult, when choices seem difficult to make, just knowing that God's on your side makes a difference. Knowing that God is with me, that he's with you, and that because I know Jesus, he'll help me choose wisely, makes all the difference. 
And I can see people nodding. I can see people testifying that that's been their experience too. So when you choose to follow Jesus, when you choose to seek God's wisdom, he promises to give it. He won't leave us floundering around. And we will be victorious. We will defeat the devil because it's already been done. So while it might seem a really obvious choice to make, the whole point of this passage is that some people will still choose folly over wisdom. Some people will still choose the temporary pleasures of this world over the permanent relationship that we can have with God and the feast and the eternity that we'll spend with him. Some people will still choose death over life. So what's it mean for us today? It means we've got two invitations and on the surface both look appealing but only one comes with pure motives. Choose God. Choose his path. Choose Jesus. And in doing so, you're choosing life. You're choosing to live. Said at the beginning, there's a cause and effect of everything. And every decision, every choice we make has a consequence. Some big, some small. But this decision is the biggest one you're ever going to make. It's the only decision you're going to make that has eternal consequences. Not what colour socks do I put on, but whose house will I dwell in? Will I choose to dwell with God in the house of wisdom? Or will I choose the pleasures of this world that are temporary and fleeting, which ultimately leads to death? So I was thinking about how we need to respond to this. And what what really struck me was the bit about wisdom being a lifelong process, how we constantly have to keep making that choice. Because even though we might have made it once and said, Jesus, I'm all in for you, the pull of this world can so easily try and entice us away from God and lead us away from all that he would have in store for us. So if we're going to grow in wisdom, if we're going to grow in spiritual maturity, it's something we have to keep choosing, and keep choosing to remain in. The beginning of the book of Proverbs says, Wisdom can always increase among the wise. So more than a final destination, to dwell in the house of wisdom is to keep taking those steps, to keep growing nearer and nearer, keep drawing nearer and nearer to Jesus. So I was thinking about this, and uh, a picture, kind of an idea, popped into my head. And I wonder if you've ever been in this kind of situation before. Have you ever been having a conversation with someone, and you're desperately trying to give them your undivided attention? You're trying to fix your eyes on them, you're trying to listen intently to everything that they're saying, because you know that's what you should be doing. But just over here, there's another conversation going on, and it's trying to pull your attention away. And you're trying to focus on the person in front of you. But the laughter, the noise, the stories, the anecdotes, it sounds really appealing and it sounds tempting. And you're trying to focus, but actually thinking, how quickly can I get away? Because I want to know what's going on over there. I was thinking, 
That's what the devil's trying to do. We're trying to be all out for Jesus. We're trying to choose him constantly. We're trying to do the right thing and say, you've got my heart, you've got my soul, you've got my all. But the pull of this world is trying to entice us away all the time. That conversation's getting louder and more tempting. I think what God's saying to me, maybe to others here today, is saying fix our eyes on him constantly. Fix our attention on him and just daily make that choice. So perhaps tomorrow, when that alarm goes off at some awful hour in the morning, I really just want to hit it. Perhaps I'm going to try that the first decision I make isn't do I smack the alarm clock and try and snooze it for as long as possible? But actually, who am I choosing to follow today? Am I choosing to give Jesus my whole undivided attention and fix my eyes solely on him today and not be distracted by the pull of this world? So perhaps there's a challenge for you tomorrow. Perhaps when you wake up, let your first thought, your first choice that you make be Jesus. I choose you, Jesus. Amen.